Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, a delicate conversation. When you are a member of the Federal Reserve System, as Charles Plosser was at the Philadelphia Fed, you are delicate, even in retirement, about the Fed. We asked Dr. Plosser now not to be delicate. Charles Plosser, you invented real business cycle theory. Kidlin and Prescott got the Nobel Prize. But you and Long came up with a phrase and came up with a theory. There is now a raging debate in your racket over the theoretical qualifications of Ms. Shelton to join the Fed as a governor. Your theory's been criticized, been preached. You got a Nobel Prize out of it with Kinlan and Prescott. Does Judy Shelton have a theory? Oh, gee, Tom. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think, obviously, uh, she is very popular in some circles, uh, not so popular in others. But you know, I have to I have to say that you know during the course of the of, of history, um, the board of governors has had many people of many different stripes and perspectives and on economics and macroeconomics. So uh, I think that um, uh, if you if you think Judy Sheldon is a great economist, going to be a great Fed governor, then that's fine. If you think that's not the case, then my guess is she will have relatively little impact overall on the way policies mm. proceed. So, I mean, I think debate's not a bad thing. So I, I tend to be a little more open-minded about um, about the, the willingness of, of the institution to uh, 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 to respond to these sorts of episodes. So I, you know, she wouldn't have been my first pick, but... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the consequences are terribly serious one way or another. Dr. Plosser, the real business cycle theory always is at a theory of exogenous shocks. You've been giving your exogenous shock with a deficit. What will these trillion dollars of deficits do to our financial system? And is there a certitude that we will see inflation? Well, there's never a certain, 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 certitude about anything in the future. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, we've had a very serious shock to the system, partly due to the shutdown and the coronavirus. Uh, and I think that the large deficits will have their own set of consequences. We were already in a situation where uh, fiscal policy uh, that was being conducted in this country was not, was not sustainable. And this is just going to make matters even more challenging. So I think there's a real problem. We've got a real problem. I think that... Uh, uh, and, and my real problem is, is not is not the, just the fiscal policy, but how the Fed responds to that fiscal policy and the pressures they're going to be under to engage in uh, off-budget <clears throat> fiscal policy and support spo- supporting fiscal policy in ways that may be detrimental for the Fed and for the economy as a whole. What would be the best way for the Fed to execute a lessening of the balance sheet? Well, I think there, there are a variety of views on that. My preference was, would, would be to let them just continue to run this thing off to stop increasing the balance sheet. It seems like they increased the balance sheet a lot in the financial crisis. They promised we would, they promised exit and it never happened. And now it's 50% bigger than it was after the great, uh, crisis, the financial, 
crisis. So um, I'm, I'm not sure where this is going, and I think they need to declare their independence and regain control of monetary policy uh, that's independent of uh, the fiscal pressures that they're going to be under. Charles, it used to be the Charlie Plus of Richard Fisher one-two punch. They just don't make them like you guys anymore on the FOMC. Do you think we are suffering from groupthink of the Federal Reserve? Well, there's always a, there's always a bit of that at the, in any institution. Uh, and uh, I am worried that there's not enough pushback on things. I mean, we, we argued uh, back in 2009, 10, and 11 the problems that we were going to get into with QE and the dangers of the large balance sheet and the risk of it being abused by the fiscal authorities and the difficulty we were going to face in getting out of it. And nobody wanted to listen then. And now we're back in the same boat, except it's bigger and the risks are greater. And so uh, I think that it would be wise upon the Fed, particularly now, to be more articulate about what the exit ramp looks like from all this and how they're going to get out from under it. And... uh, uh, the abuse of the Fed for fiscal policy purposes is even larger now than it was then. And I'm, not, I'm afraid that, you know, it, it's not looking good. And, I don't, and I'm concerned the Fed doesn't push back enough. Charlie, I'm interested in this word that. abuse because the Federal Reserve, a lot of people would consider they are enabling this deliberately. This is an objective to work with the Treasury, to work with fiscal authorities, and not just the Fed, but globally. And many economists, Charlie, considering that the optimal way of conducting policy right now. This word abuse, these words, these phrases, this isn't good. Charlie, why is it not good? Can you communicate that really clearly? It's it's, it's not good because the Fed was granted independence in order to be able to conduct policy for the long run and conduct policy independent of Partisan, uh, partisan politics. And what we see now is when you lose that imp- independence, when you become uh, more susceptible to politicization, then the Fed's decisions will no longer necessarily be about the best interest of the economy, but whoever happens to have political power, either in Congress or the administration. Charlie, are we already there when it comes to asset price inflation? You've got Fed officials that have been pretty sanguine I'm, I'm about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried that we, we, the Fed is enabling this. Maybe not intentionally, but indirectly they are enabling the ability of, of, uh, of this to, to go on and encouraging uh, uh, expectations from the marketplace and other parts of the economy that the Fed is the rescuer, uh, not just of last resort, but of first resort. And Congress has used the Fed's balance sheet to fund the transportation bill and in uh, 2015, they, they, they used it during this crisis to have the Fed do the lending on behalf of the Treasury instead of having the Treasury do it. They have, uh, you know, they funded the Consumer Finance Protection Agency out of the Fed's budget, but with no authority by the Fed. So um, there are examples of how the fiscal authorities are abusing the Fed's balance sheet, and the Fed has allowed this to happen without much pushback. Their operating regime of this large balance sheet and their unwillingness to shrink it and their, the expectations they've set up of the financial markets of, of backing failures and volatility uh, is all part of the play here to um, uh, as part of the actions that are supporting and encouraging um, this lack of independence. Charlie. And I think that's... 
from a very dangerous. From a philosophical perspective, people talk about the dangers of a Fed or a central bank not being politically independent. From an economic perspective, what are the negative consequences from the fact that the Fed has taken the actions that it has, to your view, uh, perhaps too much in tandem with the Treasury Department uh, and the U.S. administration? What are the dangers? The dangers are losing control of both inflation and political independence. I mean, look what look, 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 the history of of central banking and politics is not a is not a pretty one. And that those countries where central banks have become arms of the political or administrative authorities and used to substitute for sound fiscal policies and encourage money creation is is the history is terrible. I mean, the empirical evidence is just wrought with hyperinflation, like in Zimbabwe or Germany. You can just go down the list. Argentina. I mean, you can just go down the list and see well, what happens when the central banks become pawns of the political authorities. But, Charles, we did not see that. Let's be clear here that coming out of the crisis, many looked for higher inflation and it didn't occur. Did it just go over on the balance sheet side to assets? Did we just simply move the dynamics of price over to asset inflation? Well, perhaps, but really what happened was when the Fed, people said the Fed printed money, but mostly what it did was put reserves in the banking system that sat there. Part of the problem and the puzzle, I think, and one of the things that I think is problematic for the future, is that money supply growth, money in, in circulation after the great financial crisis, all that stuff the Fed printed sat in the banks. It didn't circulate very much. So there was no big increase in the money supply. I think that's an interesting puzzle. It may have to do with interest on reserves and other things. The Fed hasn't answered this question yet. But if you look at what's happened in the last three months, unlike the great financial crisis when the Fed blew up its balance sheet, in this episode, there's been a huge increase in money. I don't know whether it's going to lead to a different outcome or not. It kind of depends on what, what the Fed does, but I, I think that, um, uh, that that's part of the puzzle and part of the thing that the Fed's not really hasn't really addressed in its review of uh, what their new strategy is going to be. I mean, they tried, af- yeah. after much criticism, they tried to get inflation up to two, 2% or claim they were with zero interest rates for, what, seven years almost? And inflation didn't rise. So now they're talking about a new strategy where they're going to plan on overshooting inflation. Well, I mean, they haven't even been able to get it to 2% with zero interest rates for seven years. So what's wrong? That's the elephant in the room here that the Fed needs to address, not some refined view of inflation averaging versus inflation targeting or whatever. I think they need a more fundamental think about what their policies Maybe it's, like I said, the interest on reserves or a large yeah. balance sheet. Uh, all those things impact how, the, how monetary policy works. Hey, Charlie, and I, I know one thing for sure. Gripping with that. Chairman Powell's happy you're not on the FOMC today as that meeting begins. <clears throat> Charles, we've got to leave it there. It's fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Always fortunate to speak to you. Charles Plosser there, the former Philadelphia Fed president. Right now, let's jumpstart this discussion and do it through the prism of experience of Tobias Lefkovich at Citigroup. It helps. He was a sell-side analyst. He knows the granularity of the corporations and, of course, the bigger view at Citigroup on the stock market. Tobias, have you changed your view in the last number of days? 
on the last number of days, we, we think the market, and we have thought the market was a bit ahead of itself um, in the sense that the expectations for powerful recovery on earnings without kind of bumps along the way, back to some degree by, quote-unquote, the Powell put. Um, I was listening to your prior conversation about the bond market, um, and the bond market's actually sending you two different messages. If you, all you did was look at the U.S. 10-year yield, you would say, it is disbelieving, if you like, in the recovery. But if you were to look at the U.S. 10-year break-evens, they continue to move higher. So there is an expectation for something happening, at least in the pricing side. Are you seeing that in the equity space? I mean, I'm looking at revenue shortfalls at 3M, revenue shortfalls at McDonald's. I mean, are you just baking that into your 2021 cake? Yeah, we are. I mean, look, we're, we're looking for earnings for this year in the 125 range and then 150 next year. Consensus for next year is 164. And a survey we did in late June of over 140 institutions suggested that 75% of them believe that 164 is too high. On the other hand, people are chasing momentum because they need to perform. So if certain stocks are carrying further, they're jumping in, even if they don't necessarily like it. Um, but they feel they have to be, to quote New York Lotto, you've got to be in it to win it. Tobias, what do you think of the argument that because we've got narrow breadth, this is a fragile rally? Do you agree with that? Not entirely. Um, look, there are some large-cap tech names that are clearly leading the market in the sense that people wanted secular growth with bulletproof balance sheets and free cash flow generation, the kind of a defensive trade. But, for example, in the second quarter, 126 names in the S&P 500 beat the S&P 500 by more than 10 percentage points. So it's not like only five names did well and 121 did poorly. And I think that's kind of missed in the what I would call the narrative out there. Well, let's add to the narrative. Big tech earnings this Thursday. What's the, the Tobias Lefkovich guide at this point? Uh, look, I think people are looking for um, potentially some disappointment because the expectations are high. The work from home construct has generated some particular business trends that it really accelerated trends that were going before. So the idea of you know online shopping versus in-store shopping has been a trend for a while, but we've probably moved it forward two years because of the pandemic. Uh, telehealth, the same thing. Cloud computing, all these things were already very much moving along. All we've really done is supercharge that. Tobias, meantime, one of the big stories of the past week has been the weaker dollar, the dollar falling to the weakest, according uh, versus its uh, competitor currencies since 2018. How does this factor into your equity strategy? So it's actually quite important, Lisa. If I look at um, the budget deficits as a percent of GDP, it's pretty been pretty good lead indicator for many years now uh, for the dollar, and it was suggesting dollar weakness already prior even to the pandemic. But I think as the pandemic occurred, people ran for the safety of the dollar. They ran for the safety of treasuries, um, the belief being, hey, this is the biggest economy in the world. Um, we're going to have significant support systems of your fiscal or, or monetary stimulus, and this is a place to hide. As you're starting to reopen the economy, and even with these kind of awful bumps in terms of outbreaks, um, it's unlikely we're going to shut down the economy the same way we did March, April, and May. Again, it's just too expensive um, from an economic perspective, too many job losses, and not to mention some of the social ills that come out of it in terms of mental health, domestic abuse, things like that. So it's unlikely you'll see that kind of shutdown. You may see uh, sporadic ones or regionally focused ones, but not entire countries. And in that sense, um, you're looking at an environment where the dollar doesn't have to be at safe haven. When that pulls back. Historically, emerging markets have performed the U.S. Historically, uh, certain groups that are 
even though they have large international um, sales like pharma or semiconductors, actually don't do as well um, with a weakening dollar. And then there are other ones that do particularly well, more commodity-oriented, energy, materials, et cetera. Um, so there are you know, aspects to the dollar that are quite important. So in other words, is this the playbook that you're going to, the idea that we're going to have a weaker dollar going forth that will continue to weaken, given the fact that, given the, the parameters that you just laid out, and that people should be going into emerging markets uh, and staying away from the multinationals? Not necessarily. Again, I said multinationals, again, take, advantage, take a look at semiconductors, take a look at pharma. They're multinational. They have large exposure to international sales, but they actually do poorly when the dollar weakens, um, and they do better when the dollar strengthens, which is not consistent with kind of the intuitive element of what it does. Uh, think of it international sales. If the dollar weakens, you'll actually translate to higher revenues in the U.S. They don't trade that way. Um, again, everybody's entitled to their misperceptions, but um, we actually look at how the stocks trade. Right. Uh, Tobias, away from Fortress Corbett, your thoughts on the big banks? Um, look, they're, they're an area that investors have disliked for a while. Um, initially, it was the shape of the yield curve, concerns about credit loss provisions in, in kind of a bad economy, but they're willing to trade up some other cyclicals around that. So, you know, we wonder if there's something even more um, disturbing in investors' mindsets. Maybe this acceleration I talked about in trends pushes more towards fintech. But but I think the, the, the stocks themselves look very, very attractively valued right now in the banks. Um, the you know again if if the world isn't as awful as everybody thinks then the credit loss provisions have been over provisioned um and you know there still is business activity out there either large corporations still need to borrow money the credit card businesses is, you know are generally doing well as people are buying things online using their cards either debit or credit so it's kind of hard to to kind of get a sense that things are awful awful in, in in banks there is some concern i believe about the elections maybe um if the democrats take um the the senate as well as the white house then maybe there'll be some more kind of bank bashing but um you know, these are these are more speculation than anything kind of real at this point. Hey, Tobias, great to catch up with you, sir. Tobias Lefkovich there of City. Chris Kruger is at Cowan, and he has a reputation for exquisite layout of the detail. He did that in June for Cowan of the many previous trillion dollars of stimulus. I'm sure he'll do it again in August. Chris Kruger joins us uh, now. Chris, what is the detail you're most focused on as we stagger to some kind of agreement? Yeah, well, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me back. I mean, I think that the big question here, the crux of this phase four bill, is going to be the expiring $600 weekly unemployment insurance uh, payments, which uh, which ended last, uh, which ended this this weekend. The House Democrats want to extend that for six months uh, at six hundred dollars. The Republican plan from last night would take that six hundred dollars down to two hundred dollars through September, and then basically kick it to the states for the states to figure out how to cap it at seventy percent of previous wages. I mean, I think there's there's no real surprise from the the bid ask where we are. Uh, the House Democrats uh, put up over $3 trillion over two months ago, and I think it'll be one of the great political what-ifs, you know, why President Trump and the Republicans didn't sort of embrace a $3 trillion uh, stimulus two months ago, whereas now we're, we're, we're steering off a fiscal cliff for over 20 million Americans 
and we're probably somewhere in the trillion to one and a half trillion dollar ballpark. Chris, from an economic perspective, let alone a political one, is there any argument that you believe in, that you think is legitimate against uh, having a $600 unemployment benefit continue, the enhanced unemployment benefit continue for the next couple of months? Well, the real pushback has been from uh, a number of White House advisors and Senate Republicans. If you recall, phase three in March almost fell apart over the $600 uh, weekly supplemental. Uh, Various studies have shown that, you know, as much as five five out of the six folks uh, are getting uh, effectively a raise from their previous uh, salary from from January. This is really, though, the key... um, uh, the, the key controversy with the bill, Republicans will get the liability shield. Democrats will get some chunk of money to go to states and municipalities. The $600 unemployment uh, fiscal cliff is the real uh, is the real question. Chris, is an interim bill at this point dead on arrival? Do you see any prospect for that down in Washington? It could happen, right? Sort of the the old saying is whenever Washington finds itself on the edge of a fiscal cliff, they tend to build more land. Um, So perhaps doing an extension of the $600 weekly payments maybe through September, that uh, because you will have another cliff uh, when the fiscal year begins on October 1, right? You'll have to pass some kind of bill to keep the government from shutting down. So maybe tying it to that, but that's going to be that's going to come under intense pressure from, uh, you know, a number of uh, fiscal hawks who have all of a sudden returned to Washington uh, after two years of hibernation. How does being a fiscal hawk poll in America at the moment, Chris, among some of these constituencies? You know, I've, I've like I said earlier, I think that, that you know, it's going to be one of the great political what ifs on on that Heroes package over three trillion dollars uh, from uh, that the House Democrats sponsored over and passed over two months ago. I think it's 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 quite regional. Uh, you see, uh, but candidly, the 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 Senate Republicans who are most vocal on this are not running for re-election. Right? They have staggered terms, so that maybe answers your question. This is the question, and I want to sort of double down on what John was talking about, this idea of what political benefit is there to going against some sort of big fiscal stimulus? At this point, how is the idea of an ongoing enhanced unemployment benefit polling among Republicans? I haven't seen specific polling relative to Republicans. I mean, there is a real belief among Senate Republicans, though, that this uh, extension of the six hundred dollars is keeping um, is keeping the economy back, meaning that people would rather stay at home and collect the six hundred dollars on top of their state payments as opposed to going back into the workforce and and looking for jobs. Chris, what are you going to look for today in the next twenty four hours in Washington? the whole cable media frenzy, the newspaper frenzy, et cetera. What is Chris Kruger most focused on? Well, I mean, it, it is a bit of a, a crazed week here. I mean, you, you yeah. have the ongoing uh, funeral of, of, of the late John Lewis. You have the big tech hearing tomorrow. You obviously have the Fed as well. So I don't expect much um, on phase four today. 
Uh, the, the primary negotiators, though, um, are pretty much the same from phase three, with the exception of now Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, uh, is sort of a, a co-head along with the Treasury secretary. But then it's, you know, the, the, the actors we've seen before, McConnell, Pelosi, Schumer. Um, so, you know, at some point, I suspect we will have uh, a meeting at the White House, which will probably predictably, you know, go sideways. I think as you know, you, you want to keep those five folks in a room, I think, injecting uh, the president into these talks. You know, we, we've seen that the last couple of times mm-hmm. and it inevitably, you know, causes a, a negative tape bomb. That also could be a, a, a positive Right. That's sort of how the sausage is made here. So uh, we'll see it unfold. This I would say, though, that this has uh, a lack of urgency that the previous negotiations had. And I think some of that is because, you know, we're not opening limit down every morning anymore. We need the market to do the hard work. It's depressing. Chris, thank you, sir. (laughs) Chris Kruger, Cowan Washington Research Group Managing Director. Right now, a serious conversation, but we must digress at the top with the lieutenant governor of the Empire State. Kathy Hochul is a pride of Buffalo, and she knows quite well that nothing really matters except for the movie The Natural. The Natural was filmed in Buffalo. It was a hugely important and emotional uh, uh, vision of old baseball parks. And then Buffalo went on to build the jewel of minor league baseball, Pilot Field, which is now where the Toronto Blue Jays will uh, play. Bloomberg Surveillance has, of course, sent a note to Toronto saying, you've got to be kidding me. Hochul has to throw out the first pitch. Lieutenant Governor, will you throw out (laughs) the first pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays? Oh, if asked, I will serve, and I'll get out there and start practicing every bit. I've been known for even single-A teams to stand along the New York State Thruway practicing, uh, so I just don't embarrass my state and my family. So I'm not good at it, but I take it very seriously. I watch videos of other first pitches, and uh, you know, I just don't want to bring any... Uh, Oh, stop. You're being political. You don't want to do a Fauci. Let's leave it at that. Too many. You don't want to do any other talents. Yeah. You don't want to do a Fauci. I got it. Look, there's we don't have enough time here when there's so many serious issues. You're going to get one hundred billion dollars of school aid from the Republican stimulus. Is that enough? What a joke. I mean, seriously, you know, when you see the Republicans now have this crisis in their own states. I mean, a couple months ago, they were saying, and I'm not making this up, Mitch McConnell said there'll be no blue state bailouts. And that's when it was New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and California. Well, today, because no one followed the playbook that Governor Cuomo handed them on how to manage a pandemic, we have a crisis in the red states, Florida, Arizona, Texas, et cetera. So to think that that's going to be enough money for the rest of the country and New York State in particular, it's it's paltry. It's an embarrassment. And there's no way that schools can open safely if we don't get more assistance from the federal government. Don't even be talking about a trillion dollar plan. That's how much should be going to the state and local governments, period, for getting everything else. I mean, that's that's the baseline just for state and local in order for us to make up for 14 billion dollars in lost revenue. $5 $5 billion in uh, additional expenses, which continue to climb every day. So, so don't, you know, don't embarrass yourselves, Washington. Get your act together. And if the Senate Republicans can't get their unity in their caucus, then turn it over to Chuck Schumer, who will get the job done. 
Lieutenant Governor, a lot of economists agree with you that the states very much need a pretty big fiscal bailout or some sort of fiscal support. There is a question, though, about what the states can be doing with respect to luring back businesses once the pandemic is over. Midtown is a ghost town. People are leaving the state. People are leaving the city. What economic plans do you have or are you talking about to try to bring businesses and residents back? Lisa, you hit right on it. I mean, normally the state of New York is very generous in terms of incentivizing businesses uh, from Buffalo to Manhattan. And we understand that that's part of our job is an opportunity for businesses to thrive and create jobs. That's the bottom line, get people back to work. If we do not get that assistance from the state, from the federal government, how are we going to continue funding the economic development plans that I oversee as chair of the Regional okay, Economic but Development Lute- Council? Lieutenant we Governor, need that money. We have I, to do it. I don't mean to interrupt, but as you well know, there's 12 Republicans upstate in New York who are fighting for their political life. Are Republicans and Democrats in New York State on the same page, or frankly in Arkansas, are they on the same page as saying to, to the elites in Washington, wake up? I just don't see the calendar immediacy in Washington. Yeah, I don't know what planet they're living on, Tom. I really don't. Have they not been seeing the overcrowding in hospitals and people in other states just searching for the PPE that we had to go through? Don't they understand that? What's the, what's the unemployment rate in Buffalo right now? I don't have a clue. What's the unemployment rate in your yeah. Buffalo? I, I will tell you statewide, it's 16%. Buffalo, it's probably closer to 20 And for them to say that they're going to cut unemployment insurance, I'm sorry. A year ago in New York State, we had a 4% unemployment rate. Great success of the Cuomo administration, 4%. People were working. They're assuming that people want to now stay home, people that are just being lazy and they don't want to get back to work because they can collect $600 a week. They can't get back to work because the hotels are not open. There's no jobs for them. They want to get back to work. Okay, down the throughway to the late, great Barbara B. Conable. Great. He wanted fiscal prudence around the federal government. What's the certitude for conservatives that we're going to pay back all this debt down the road? Our economy will come back, and it will come back roaring if we can get the assistance from the federal government to get us through a 100-year pandemic. This is not something we ask for on a regular basis, even though we do know that New York State sends about $30 billion more to Washington annually uh, compared to what we get back. And you look at a state like Kentucky that's a taker. We're a giver. So we're not even trying to settle that score. We're just saying, can you help us out, federal government, like other national governments around the planet? They don't leave the individual provinces of different countries to fend for themselves. Don't do that to your states. We need a federal response. We've needed it since the beginning. And, and heaven help us if you're not figuring out a federal response to getting this, this vaccine out there once it's developed. We have to make yeah. sure that they're developing that now. Make sure it's going to be available for everybody. Invoke the Defense Production Act. Don't leave it up to every individual company to try and go to market and commercialize it. This needs to be a federal government response or else we'll never get our economy back. Kathy, 45 seconds. Forgive me for keeping this one tight. If you don't get the age you want, how quickly does the state-level austerity begin in New York? Oh, almost immediately. We are counting on this. We need that money now to give to our schools so they can have the PPE and the disinfecting and, and rent additional space or whatever they need to do just to get our kids back to school. And guess what? If our kids don't get back to school, the economy doesn't go back because who's watching the kids when the parents go to work? And this always falls on the shoulders of women. Senator Gillibrand and I toured the state for the last couple of days going to 
cities, large and small, talking about a child care crisis yeah. that is going to hold back our recovery, and federal dollars can assist with that. Well, it's going to start hurting almost immediately. Lieutenant Governor, appreciate your time. Please come back soon. Lieutenant Governor Thanks. of New York there, Kathy Hochul. It is all the rage. And, of course, at Davos, each and every year, there is a theme that becomes so in. Paul, I don't know where ESG came in, but it wasn't last year. What happened last year is it reached a massive pre-pandemic critical mass. And what was so stunning as an 18-year Davos watcher, maybe 15-year, excuse me, Davos watcher, is there was a real conviction to it this time around. I give a shout out to Bank of America, who I did a panel with on ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance. Matthew Winkler is how I go to Davos. He's the former editor-in-chief, editor-in-chief emeritus, but very much working his usual 15-hour day for Bloomberg still, penning an essay on ESG. And Matt, you say there's a real persistency to ESG being acknowledged by the street as profitable. Tom, it's always good to be with you. Um, Yes, uh, it's a long-term trend, but it's accentuated by COVID-19. And what we're seeing right now this year is ESG is where the profits are. Uh, So what that means is, if you like, doing the right thing increasingly is the smartest bet. Why is that uh, evident, well, if you just looked at the broad market, which is iShares exchange-traded funds, if you look at the ones that are invested in ESG, they're dramatically outperforming uh, the S&P 500 index. Uh, no lesser light, if you will, than Al Gore recently told a conference held by Bloomberg that um, it is ever clearer that sustainable technologies are yeah. cheaper and better. And so when you look at actually – you know, the performance of companies, which we can do on the Bloomberg, my colleague Shinpei and I, you know, there are uh, more than three dozen companies generating at least 50 percent of their revenue from clean energy products or clean technology. And as a group, their sales are going to grow 9 percent this year, 30 percent in 2021, 22, 23 percent or so. And that's a marked contrast to, say, the S&P what? 500 energy index, which is the benchmark for fossil fuel. And those companies are going to have revenue declines of about 29% this year. And their growth in the next two years is going to be much less than the SG crowd. Matt, you mentioned Al Al Gore. You mentioned Al Gore. I believe he's a Democrat. Something about a hanging chad years ago. Has ESG become a Republican theme as well? Well, if you're an investor, you don't presumably care so much about politics or ideology, what you care about is total return. So if you look at the total return, uh, which I think Republicans and Democrats alike are interested in, the total return (laughs) over five years, two years, one year, you know, pick any period really since 2015. And the ESG company's total return is staggeringly better than the fossil fuel crowd. So if you want to make money, Uh, you know, and stay rich. Uh, This has been a good trade. Um, And not just, you know, this year, but uh, really over a longer term period. So why is that happening? It's because, as Gore said, uh, the growth 
is in alternative energy. That's where investors increasingly are getting most excited, and that's where the innovation is. Whereas in fossil fuel, it's basically the same yeah, and Paul, over and over again. That goes back to the revenue line, the revenue yep. dynamic we've been talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. Matt, I wondered, have you noticed a difference maybe either in performance of stocks or willingness of companies to embrace ESG post, you know, in the context of this new world we're in here with the pandemic? Well, again, if you go to the Bloomberg, and this is something my colleague Shinpei does all the time, and look at the trajectory of the exchange-traded funds that are invested in ESG and the exchange-traded funds invested, say, in fossil fuel, it's dramatic. I mean, the divergence is dramatic. So what that shows you is flow of funds consistently, robustly is flowing into ESG, whereas fossil fuel is the same old same old and it's you know relatively stable but there's no growth there so that's where the excitement is and you know one really dramatic example of this and you know i don't want to belabor this point because i have before on this show is if you look at the gap between aramco that's the saudi arabian oil company that still is the world's most valuable company went public in december more you know right after its ipo it was worth more than two trillion dollars well, what's happened since then? Uh, the gap between Aramco and Tesla, which I don't need to advertise, uh, <laughs> has has narrowed by about five hundred billion dollars. That's that's a really dramatic, yeah. uh, you know, situation, if you like. Now, what's interesting about that is that five hundred billion dollars is a little more than the four hundred and sixty-seven billion of value of the world's ninth largest company. That would be Berkshire Hathaway created by Warren Buffett, once the world's richest man. He's the avatar of value investing. He's so far shown no inclination to move toward ESG so far. But it's really an indication of the sign of the times. See, how you Uh, see, Paul, Matt brings this up. I loaded the boat, double leveraged on a Ramco at 38. (laughs) What a nightmare that's been. Exactly right. Hey, Matt, thanks thanks, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Matt Winkler, co-founder of Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief Emeritus. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.